0: Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 27, verses 1 through 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident."
1: In case you are wondering, Psalm 27 is not one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you, know, you know, we've been going through Ten Commandments since the beginning of the year, and uh, Rob hasn't really preaching uh, these commandments in a very fresh way. And we've been learning, in particular, how God has revealed Himself through these commandments. And uh, you might remember, for some of you who are here, in the last summer we went through a series in the Book of Psalms. And one of the psalms that I was studying at the time was uh, this psalm that we'll be going through psalm, together, Psalm 27. So it's something that I, I really wanted to study, so, um, which is why I selected this psalm uh, and to take a short break from, from the Ten Commandments. And, I will read, well, and next week, Rob, Pastor Rob will go back to the, psalm, I mean, to the Ten Commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments series. So let me uh, pray before we uh, continue. Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you that you've given us your word to reveal yourself to us. So we pray that uh, you will be in the foreground and I'll be in the background, that your word will do, uh, do its work of convicting our hearts and minds um, as we hear from your word and as we hear from this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of us are prone to worry. And we have tendency to be anxious and worried over issues of life. The worries and troubles of the world do not go away when we become Christian. In fact, the Bible tells us that if you are a Christian, in this world, you will have tribulation. So let me ask you, let's take a pause and ask, what are some of your worries? In 2020, a couple of years ago, it may have been the coronavirus. Coronavirus. Perhaps now it's the inflation or the economy, or all-too-frequent mass shootings, or worries are more personal, such as serious illnesses in in your loved ones, or concerns about our children or about our job. And these are all valid, real concerns shared by most Americans, probably for many of us here in, in this church. And when you have worries or anxieties, what is one thing that you seek, one thing that you would desire that God would do? So let's look together in this Psalm, Psalm 27, to see what the psalmist, in this case the King David, what he teaches us. So first we'll look at how David is confident in the midst of fears, and then we'll look at the source of their confidence. So let me reread, um, and thank you, Julia, for reading the scriptures for us. And let me reread the first three verses of Psalm 27. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though world rise against me, yet I will be confident. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written during David's life. Perhaps it is when he wasn't even yet a king, and he was being chased by King Saul, who desperately wanted to kill him out of jealousy. Or perhaps later during his reign, when his own son, even his own son, Absalom, conspired against him. In any case, their circumstances were pretty dire. And look at these words that he uses. Evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh. Army encamp against me. War rises. And these are real fearful circumstances. And yet the psalmist states, My heart shall not fear, and I will be confident. He refuses to let these worries crumble him and instead confidently declares, God is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? God is David's light, that is, the one who reveals the truth to him and guides him perfectly. And God is his salvation, that is, the one who will deliver him and rescue him from any dangers. And God is his stronghold. That is the one who will protect him against any enemies. Applying this passage to our, to our lives, theologian John Stott puts it this way, the Lord is my light to guide me, my salvation to deliver me in the stronghold of my life in whom I take refuge. You see, David trusts in his God, so he doesn't need to fear. No one, nothing. He states, there's no trouble big enough for me to lose my trust in God. You see, the antidote for worry and anxiety is an unwavering trust in God's fatherly care. But I know that some of us, some of you are going through a lot of struggles, a lot of troubles. It's been a difficult period for many. And I understand the difficulties. And the psalmist is not saying that we just go through these troubles as if everything is fine. In fact, later in the psalm, we'll hear his desperate plea to God. But as as we'll see, even as he goes through ups and downs, it's God that he looks to for help and guidance. God is his light his salvation, and his stronghold. So how do we develop such confidence, such trust? Where does that confidence come from? And how can we have such confidence and such trust in God? So we'll spend the rest of our time together to look at the source of David's confidence. And earlier I asked a question, what would be one thing that you would ask God when you are surrounded by fearful circumstances. Naturally, we want God to fix the circumstances for our family members to be healed, for my job to be protected. And David says that there is one thing that he would really like God to do, that he would ask God. But what he asks is surprising. So let's look at verse 4 again. It says, one thing... Have I asked of the Lord that I would seek after? Remember, he's in the midst of terrible circumstances. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Isn't that interesting? Here's David surrounded by fearful troubles, evildoers, adversaries, wars. And these aren't just imaginary Metaphor, these are real imaginary, these are not imaginary, these are real difficult circumstances. Yet his request is not, oh Lord, save me from my enemies. And that would have been a very natural prayer. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for deliverance. We ought to ask for healing, for protection from evil. And you'll see, in fact, later in the psalm, David desperately asked God to deliver him from his enemies. In fact, he prays in verse 9 and 12, Cast me not off, forsake me not, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. And we have probably prayed prayers such as this, God, just get me through this, and I'll follow you, obey you. Lord, just get me through this, then I will start reading the Bible, go to church every week, and do anything to follow you if you just get me out of this. Isn't that how we often pray, how we ask God? But David's immediate request is not for deliverance from his troubles. David has it the other way around. Here he's surrounded by troubles, and he says, One thing that I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That is one thing that David wants, and is to be with God in God's house. He deals with his concerns by first going to God, and his immediate, his main request is not for deliverance. Instead, his prayer is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And this isn't just a situational prayer while he's in a bad lot. This is his desire all the time, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Why? What does he mean that he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord? You see, the temple was not yet built. It won't be constructed for many years later until the reign of David's son, King Solomon. So what they had was a tabernacle or the tent which preceded the temple to come later during Solomon's reign. But the tabernacle represented the presence of God. Of course, God did not literally live in the tabernacle as people live in their houses. God cannot be contained in a building. But the tabernacle signified the presence of God in saying in a physical form, I'm with you. And we know from the book of Exodus that God gave very specific instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And that was a place where the Israelites would come to meet God. It's where God told the Israelites that he will be present. Exodus 25 says, God told Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then in chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. In the glory of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. Tabernacle was where God was going to meet the Israelites. So David seeks God in the house of the Lord because this is where God has promised his presence to the people of God. He wants to be in God's presence all the days of his life. He wants to be with God. But what does he want to do in the tabernacle? Tabernacle was not a place of escape from his enemies. The latter part of verse 4 says he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What does that mean? What does it mean to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? And how do you describe God's beauty? Some of, some of you, probably some of the older folks here, may remember a song by Keith Green. It goes, oh Lord, you are beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. And when I became a Christian in high school, I grew up singing that song. But when I think about it, I'm not sure I knew what it meant. The Bible says we cannot see God's face. And we've been studying the Ten Commandments that we're not to make an image of God or bow down to it. So how do you see God's beauty or gaze upon it? Before we talk about God's beauty, in general, how do you define beauty? Beauty is difficult to define. It's not like an object, like a tree, which we can easily describe. Or you can take someone outside and say, That's it. That's the tree. But how do you describe beauty? Even though we have difficulty describing it, we all desire beauty. We want to marry a beautiful person. We want to live in a beautiful house. We want to go to the mountains or the ocean to surround ourselves in the beautiful scenery. And beauty is not something just visual we also use the term beauty to describe how we experience something wonderful. So, for example, for our young parents, when you experience your toddler taking the first steps, isn't that beautiful? Well, sometimes when you watch a movie or play and you are so affected by the beauty of the story, it warms your heart and makes you cry. Similarly, the Bible uses different ways and different Hebrew words to talk about God's beauty. The Hebrew word for beauty in Psalm 27 that we read is noam, meaning to be satisfied or to be pleasant or to be delightfully pleasant, which is, by the way, the same root as in the name Naomi. In another place in the Old Testament, Isaiah 33, it says, your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. Here the Hebrew word for beauty is yofi, And it used to describe something attractive, something excellent. So when you put lo- these thoughts together, God's beauty can, devi- can be defined as the perfection of all his attributes, how they are perfectly consistent, perfectly balanced, perfectly excellent, that there are no equals. He's unique and he's separate from anything else. And it's also how these perfect set of attributes attract us. And beauty is not just one of many attributes that God has. All of who God is, beautiful. God is all-powerful. And no one, nothing else, is more powerful than God. God is all-knowing. He knows everything, every movement of molecules in our bodies. And God is perfectly righteous. He does all things rightly and justly. And God is perfectly gracious, loving the undeserving. Our God is all of these attributes, perfectly balanced, perfectly consistent together. And it's that perfection, and makes God beautiful. But let's try a thought experiment and remove just one of these attributes. So, for example, if God is all-loving and all-knowing, but if He's not powerful, we would have a God who is unable to do anything about injustices in the world. Well, let's try another experiment and say that He is all-powerful and all-knowing, all-righteous, but he's not full of mercy. You would not want to be anywhere near such God since he knows our every wrongdoing and we will not be able to avoid his wrath. But our God is all of these attributes perfectly balanced together. And that's attractive. Our God is beautiful. Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards states, God is God. And distinguished from all other beings and exalted above them, chiefly defined by beauty. By the way, if you'd like to study more of God's perfect attributes, which I think is just a really good thing to do for us to know God, these are some of the books that I would really recommend. Knowing God by J.R. Packer, which was a really influential book for me when I became a Christian and The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. God is beautiful, and everything he does is beautiful. You know, in the beginning of the Bible, in the Genesis, it says, in the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But when God was finished with his work of creating, it says in Genesis 131, God saw that everything he had made, and behold, It was very good. And the Hebrew word for good here, tov, also implies beauty. So God was displaying his beauty through his beautiful creation. Many of us probably experience times when we look at the beautiful ocean or the magnificent mountain peaks, the majesty of the Grand Canyon, and we can't help ourselves but to see how great is our God. How great is our God who created such beauty. And rightly so. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So David, David could have said, I want to be near the Sea of Galilee and look at the sunrise and sunset and worship the God of this beautiful creation. And that would have been okay. But there's something special about David's desire to be in the temple. Pastor Tim Keller says it well. He says, of course you can see the beauty of God out in the creation. But mainly, you're going to see the beauty of God in its most intense, its ultimate, and its most magnificent expression in the temple. But what was it about the temple or the tabernacle? Tabernacle, tabernacle was not an impressive architecture. It was just a tent. So what would David see and experience in the tabernacle? Tabernacle was composed of two rooms separated by a thick curtain. You can see an image on the screen. The first room was entered from the outside and was called the holy place. The second room, excuse me, yeah, second room was the inner room was called the Most Holy Place or Holy of Holies. And in this this inner room, there would be the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets of Ten Commandments were stored. And on top of that was a cover, which was called the Mercy Seat. And no one could enter this Holy of Holies except for the priest and only once a year. You see, the design of the tabernacle made it clear that a sinner... Even the priest could not approach God on his own merit. He's to condemn in the eyes of God. Only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, the priest would enter the veil of Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the Israelites to ask God for the forgiveness of his people. So when David is in the tabernacle, he's recalling the blood on the mercy seat and remembers that God is God who forgives. David is recalling how God proclaimed about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. So David is yearning to be in a place that clearly reveals God's grace over him and shows that his sins could be forgiven. And through this forgiveness, David experiences God's beauty. Isn't that true in our earthly relationship as well? If our relationships, if our relationship with someone is broken, say between a husband and wife, Subsequ- and subsequently, when that, person is, when that person forgives you and there's reconciliation, that's beautiful. So being in the presence of God in the tabernacle and meditating on God's steadfast love and grace on the God who forgives sins, he is also confident he can trust God for all his troubles. David is trusting that he has a good God whose love is steadfast. And he can sing with joy in verse 6. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifice with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. He worships, meditates on the beauty of God, and he knows that nothing, He, he, he needs not fear anything. So David saw the beauty of God in the tabernacle in the sacrifices. But for us, where do we see God's beauty? What the psalmist saw in the tabernacle was but a faint glimpse of what is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the tabernacle was the place of sacrifice with sprinkling of blood and vividly pointed to the coming of perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. The picture of the tabernacle was to point to the greater temple, the greater sacrifice the greater revelation of God in Jesus. Jesus, who announced that he is the greater temple. In the book of John, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in the Greek language, it literally says that he pitched a tent or tabernacle among us. You see, Jesus is the new tabernacle. And yet, prophesying about Jesus as a suffering servant, Prophet Isaiah it very starkly that he has no beauty. Isaiah 53 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. As Jesus hung on the cross, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected on the cross. But you see, Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus shed his blood for our sins so that we would be forgiven. Philippians 2, 7, and 8 tells us that God the Son gave up his beauty and emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the cross, he was despised, disfigured for us. He became very unbeautiful so that we can be forgiven and become beautiful. Because he paid for our sins on the cross so that when we believe in him, we'll get our sins forgiven and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. The beauty of God is fully manifested in Jesus and his cross And we see God's perfect set of attributes coming into play in the gospel story. We see the beauty of his mercy as Jesus comes to earth to rescue us. And we see the beauty of his sacrificial love as he willingly, willingly goes to the cross. And we see the beauty of his justice as he takes the punishment for our sins, taking our place. And we see the beauty of his power as he's resurrected. Some of you may have seen the movie Top Gun, the most recent one, Maverick, and it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. And his popularity isn't simply because Tom Cruise is a, uh, is a cool guy, but there is this wonderful part of the plot which shows sacrificial love between Tom and his student pilot. And it's beautiful. Every story that has sacrificial love in the heart of the plot, grabs you and is truly beautiful. This is why the best place for us to see the beauty of God is in Jesus, in the gospel story of Jesus' sacrificial love and our forgiveness. And so when you believe in this beautiful Son of God, in the eyes of God, He no longer sees you as ugly in your sins, He sees Jesus' righteousness in you. So in the eyes of God, you are absolutely beautiful. We started our time examining how worries or fears tend to consume our lives. This psalm shows us that David trusts God and is confident in God even through troubles because he has learned to dwell in God's presence, to gaze upon God's beauty, and to seek his guidance. The troubles did not go away, but he trusted in God who was greater than his troubles. And God often allows problems to come into our lives to strengthen our faith. And every time we exercise our faith in him, in the midst of a trial, we are growing. We're growing spiritually. And that will help us not to succumb to fear and instead Trust in the promises of God. So as we go through struggles tr- as we go through struggles, we call to mind God's promises, such as in Isaiah 41:10, "Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I' am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand." I'm sure many of you can testify how the past trials have deeply grown your faith. And like the psalmist, in order for us to grow our trust in him, we need to learn to gaze upon the beauty of God and inquire of him. So as we close, I want to share with you a few practical things to help us constantly gaze on the beauty of God. But first, what blocks us from seeing God's beauty? If you are driving near the ocean, but you just drove through a big muddy puddle and the windshield is completely covered with dark brown mud, it will be difficult to see the beauty of the blue ocean. And often that's how it is with us. Humans, in our sins may not easily see God's beauty or oh, the world may choose to see only a part of who God is. The world likes the fact that our God is a God of love, grace, and mercy. And that's true. But our God is also a God of holiness, wrath, and justice. And this second part the world hates. Because the sin has blinded the eyes of the world to see God's beauty. So we need someone outside to clean the mud on the windshield then when we come to understand the truth of God's justice, recognizing that we are sinners who rightly deserve punishment, and at the same time we understand that God is a merciful God, we fall on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It is the power of God. You see, to the world, the cross is a defeat where a good man died a terrible, senseless death. But to those who have eyes to see, in the cross, we see beauty of God manifested, how God revealed his steadfast love over sinners who didn't deserve. So, dear friends, if you don't know this Jesus, ask God to open the eyes of your heart to clean the mud over your heart to see God's beauty and at the same time the ugliness of our sins that we can confess our sins and dwell in his presence gazing on his beauty. And for those of us who are Christians, we can continue to ask God to show us beauty each day so that we can meditate on the beauty of the gospel and let the gospel shape our lives so, in other words, we dwell on God by prayer and meditation on the gospel. We let this beautiful truth sink into our hearts and change us daily how we live our relationships, how we do marriage, how we do parenting, how we work. So, the first was to pray and meditate on the gospel. And second, just like David desire to inquire in his temple, we inquire of him. In those days, they did not have the written Bible like we do. To read God's word, to hear God's word, they had to go to the temple or the tabernacle and have the priests read the scrolls. So in the tabernacle, David is seeking to hear God's word and to seek his guidance. He wants to learn what God's word is teaching him about his life. So David says in verse 11 of our today's psalm, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. And elsewhere in Psalm 1, he says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. You see, he seeks, he wants God's guidance for his life. For us, we have the greater benefit because he gave us his word, his written words. In all the New Testament, so we gaze and inquire in the words that God has written for us. And through these words, God has revealed Himself to us so that we cannot, so that we can get to know Him and see His beauty. Theologian Jonathan Kings, in his book, "The Beauty of the Lord," he says, "God's beauty is seen throughout Scripture in the beauty of Christ." Scripture is one story that tells of God's beautiful heart to redeem a people for Himself and to make them beautiful like His Son, Jesus Christ. God gave us a scripture to reveal Himself to us. So it makes sense for us to want to read what He has written for us to His children. So, brothers and sisters, let's make it a habit to read and study and to inquire of him. Here's another important application for us about being in a tabernacle. Tabernacle was a public gathering place of sacrifice and worship. The experience of gazing and meditating on the beauty of the Lord was not a personal quiet time. It wasn't just a personal experience for King David, but a corporate one as it was a gathering place for the Israelites. So we too are encouraged to worship corporately as a church, as a family of God together, to meditate on on Jesus and on the cross and his beauty. And we read and hear from God's word together to seek his guidance. And Jesus spoke about the temple of his body. And Paul taught that because we are united to the risen Christ, We are the temple of the living God. So as we gather to worship corporately, as we are doing today, this is a place where God is especially present as we are the temple of the living God. And don't you agree that when we gather together, when we sing, when we pray, when we read the scripture together, we sense more of God's presence together through each other? Pastor Ray Olin says it this way, it's only in a church that we are members of Christ and of one another, moving forward together like a well-coordinated body. It is together that we worship and grow and serve according to the word of God. Then people can see his beauty in the world today in churches, grace with holiness. As a church, we can portray the beauty of Christ to each other and to the world. So we meditate on the gospel, read and inquire God's word, and we regularly join and worship together. We are to develop these as daily, weekly habits. And when they become a muscle memory, then even when troubles come, we can walk through the rough times in life without fear. A few years ago, A sister at our church, a few years ago, a sister at our church was diagnosed with a difficult medical condition. Even as she struggled through treatment and recovery, she continued to be steadfast in serving in our responsibilities at church and faithfully attending the Sunday worship gatherings with her family. She was involving the church community to be part of a walk through these trials. And she shared that during this trying period, God ministered to her by reminding her of Psalm 46:10, "To be still and know, be still and know that I am God." And as she reflected on God's sovereignty and God's fatherly care, she was able to continue to trust the Lord through the trials. I had a permission to share this from their sister, although I won't name her name. And as I share this, I can think of a number of sisters and brothers at our church who have gone through a similar experience, learning to walk through the trials because our gaze, our focus is on Christ. But it does not mean things will be always calm. You will note that even within this short psalm of 14 verses, the psalmist King David is going through ups and downs in his emotions. The first three verses talk about his fears. And the next three verses talk about his worshiping, gazing on the beauty of God. And then the next six verses from verse 7 through 12, he's praying desperate prayers. He says, O oh Lord, when I cry aloud, hide not your face from me. And then in the last two verses, verse 13 and 14, he's yet again confident and declares, wait for the Lord, be strong, wait for the Lord. So we take comfort in understanding that our Christian life will often be like that. We'll have ups and downs. But as we learn to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, even through these ups and downs, we trust God as our light, our salvation, our stronghold. Because we have a beautiful God who loves us with steadfast love. And then we can proclaim with a psalmist: wait for the Lord. And let your heart take courage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are a beautiful God. And you through because of your beauty, because of your steadfast love, you have given us your son because you love us. Lord, help us to gaze on your beauty. Help us to be completely focused on you and who you are and and for those of us are walking through difficult times Lord pray that you will be especially be present be especially comforting and help them to see that you are stronger than any, any troubles and you are beautiful more beautiful than anything else.